Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to Rethink, a show produced by Think Magazine and Campus FM at the University of Malta. I'm your host, Daiva Repechkaite. Since January, we've talked to 19 researchers tackling the most pressing environmental, social, and technical problems in Malta and beyond. Today, we invite you to look back at what we learned from these curious minds. Let's start with the environment. We'll hear Professor Alan Deydun, whose team pours over beach sand to detect microplastics, followed by Dr. Aaron McAuliffe, who is looking for water under the sea, as scientists eagerly explore the farthest corners of our planet. They also warn against limitless exploitation of its resources. Professor Ray Alul has an alarming message from his emissions monitoring station. And Dr. Marie Bergoglio tells us that we need more than individual choices to save our environment. There was this statistic coming out, which made people, you know, quite stunned people, literally, where it said that we're consuming on average about 2000 milligrams, which is two two grams of plastic on a weekly basis. So that is the equivalent of the amount of plastic in a credit card. And most of that, which is, I think, 90 percent comes from the water we drink. Around one-fourth of the plastics, which we find on beaches or in the sea itself, originates from sea-based sources, and about three-quarters originates from land. When you have an unspoiled beach in the sense that there's very little human activity on it, it does not necessarily mean that that beach is the cleanest in terms of microplastics. Okay. In fact, a few years back, I think there was also an incident when there was a massive storm and a lot of microplastics and small plastic pellets appeared on the same beach on Aintofiha from the seaward side. You know, so plastic pollution in general, litter pollution and so on, is indiscriminate if it's a beach which is frequented a lot of by humans and so on and so forth. So what we throw into the environment, and I think this is the take-home message, might end up into an area which is relatively pristine, which is relatively unspoiled and so on. So there is no protection against that sort of pollution, unfortunately, you know. Offshore groundwater at the bottom of the oceans has been proposed as a potential solution for water scarcity around the world. And this is because there's a volume of a half a million kilometer cubed of fresh water, and that's equivalent to about 100 times what humans have used in the last 100 years. Most of these waters are quite fresh. I mean, they're not as good as drinking water that you can go and drink them straight ahead, but they don't require lots of filtering or desalinization. The technology is not that different from oil exploitation. Basically, you drill and pump it out, There's a number of concerns, though. First is whether the water that we might be pumping out from the seafloor is renewable in the sense, is it being replenished from onshore? Or is it a fossilized aquifer that if we pump out, it will be completely gone after a few, perhaps, tens of years? There's a colleague of mine who has been exploring the legal implications of using offshore groundwater. And basically, there's nothing, as far as I know, on a national or international level that regulates how offshore groundwater should be used, especially when it's shared between neighbors and the situation becomes more complicated. What I wanted to mention is very important is that, okay, we're looking for offshore groundwater, but it should never replace other methods of water conservation or recycling. And to rely on these offshore groundwater resources, it's going to be expensive and potentially have environmental implications, so better not go 
down that route and just make sure that what we have is used in, its, in the most efficient way. Ships burn heavy fuel oil because that is the cheapest. It's very, very polluting. It emits a lot of nasty trace gases like sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxides, plus a lot of dirty black particulates. And a lot of the pollution we measure is in fact coming from the shipping. Essentially we measure things like the temperature, the wind speed, the direction, uh, humidity, etc. And from our analysis of the 23 years of data, it looks, if we continue to burn fossil fuels at this rate, as if the Mediterranean is headed for a temperature increase of between 3 and 5 degrees by the end of the century. If Antarctica melts as well, then God help us all. In Malta, you can imagine what will happen if the sea level goes up by 2 meters. All the low-lying areas will be flooded. If it's more than that, there won't be much left. We simply cannot go on with this. The carbon dioxide levels haven't been this high for 600,000 years. We know that from the fossil record. We have to do something. Unfortunately, the politics does not follow what the scientists recommend. There is a big time lag. So you end up with your minimum wage living in the most polluted areas, unable to afford the electricity bills that come with air conditioning. So you have to breathe that air, working in jobs which are also polluted and somehow life-threatening, if not instantly, but certainly in the long term. So it's kind of like there's a almost a snowballing of situations beyond being financially poor that also implies that you are suffering a negative quality of life. I think that there is some truth to be said that, you know, you get used to levels of discomfort when they're cumulative. If what we see around us had happened because a bomb dropped on Malta, it would, we would have described that as, you know, unbearable and we must do something to address this. If the number of deaths on the road were to be called an epidemic rather than, you know, fatal car accidents, we would be up in arms. So there is a tendency for us to become complacent because it's cumulative. Nothing will happen if people don't eventually do their part. But I think it is an unfair burden to expect and it's also an unrealistic expectation to believe that this will just happen by individual action. Individual action can matter a lot when that action is lobbying government to take action. Communication is an essential need. Linguists and social scientists are joined by artificial intelligence and virtual reality experts to help us make sense of language and interaction. We'll first hear Dr. Sarah Grek and Professor Sandra Vella talk about the coexistence between Malta's two languages. Then Dr. Meijus and Dr. Engineer Owen Asser will tell us how to make sure that technology does not leave speakers of the smaller language behind. Later, Dr. Daniel Vella and Dr. Vanessa Camilleri will speak about what we can learn about ourselves and others when we play games. 
for us, the variety that arises in a bilingual context, giving us Maltese English and with all its idiosyncrasies, that is interesting. So just to give you an example, if I'm speaking to my siblings in my home, there's likely to be a lot of code switching. We're going to be both speaking both Maltese and English and mixing it quite readily inside and sentences and across sentences. But in this context, I haven't code switched once. And I wouldn't, simply because my interlocutors, if I code switch into Maltese, are likely not to have access to that code. So I just wouldn't do it. And it's quite a natural thing for people to do. There's a couple of broadcasts happening at the moment, which we're aware of, where this code switching seems to be written in to the dialogue as well. And that's brilliant stuff for us to look at. Here's one. My estashikun, such a complete douchebag. Can I say that? Ash, come on. So again, you've got whole chunks of phrases or the odd word in Maltese and another chunk of phrases in English. Speakers do it because they can. Mm. The risk is that a child who grows up monolingual in a bilingual context, then yes, can end up being disadvantaged to some degree. And that's a shame. And it's not really enough to say, oh, well, but it's okay as long as the language that I do have is English, because English is global and more widely spoken. We know that our reality is, in fact, very different because we know that there are many situations where you do need, in fact, to have Maltese. So law would be the most obvious one. Currently, there is no app on the market which is designed specifically for Maltese-speaking individuals. So at the moment, we um, have to encourage children with good potential for language to speak in English. But they have a right to be able to speak in the language of their culture and their home. So this is quite a big project because we really want to give to bring Maltese to these children who struggle to speak. So the app is readily available on Play Store. For the time being, we have developed this on an Android platform. It is free to be downloaded by anyone. And we have, I think it has been downloaded around uh, 200 times since, yes, since I last checked, actually. But at the end of the day, when you have a population size that's so small, it's quite hard to persuade developers to actually do something for you because they're not going to get a return financially, which is why this whole project came about because somebody put me in touch with Owen. My interest in games from a philosophical angle lies in the fact that they're a new kind of experience. We kind of are in agreement that there's something which separates games and the kind of experiences we have in games from the kind of experiences we have in the actual world. It's a virtual experience, a new category which might open up new questions or lead us to look at old philosophical questions differently or from a new angle and that's what I find interesting any kind of game right even the dumbest you know let's say in inverted commas most mindless game can be interesting from a philosophical angle in terms of the kind of experience it's giving us would you say that it's a transcendental experience for me to be Super Mario when you play as Mario you don't stop being yourself of course you still know who you are you still have that identity but you are taking on a different set of bodily capabilities right you're taking on what is Mario? Mario is the ability to jump, the ability to run, the ability to pick up mushrooms and so on. And that shapes who you are in the game, right? You act a certain way because of who Mario is in the game and what the game lets you do as Mario.
there's the misconception, even by children, that from games you don't really learn anything. It doesn't mean that because they're enjoyable, they're fun, they're engaging, it doesn't mean that you're not learning something. Most probably you're learning much more from a game environment than from anything else when you're so immersed. One important notion about game-based learning is not the game per se or the content of the game, but it's the reflection that comes afterwards. And I think that's the most important part that a teacher can and should exploit during the lesson. So any game can in reality be adapted to all the different subjects in one way or another. The teacher is there more as a guide to help students reflect on what they've just played, how they played it and what they've just done. Because it's not just a matter of playing snakes and ladders or it's not just a matter of playing Monopoly, but it's picking on a particular aspect and saying, OK, so let's think a little bit. What happened here? Within the dynamics of the game, the group dynamics come out because there are people who are selfish. We want to get these really cool off-the-shelf games that children play at home. And basically what we did was create a book for the teachers where they can refer to the game and see how an example of how to integrate it into the lesson. For example, one game, one popular game was about rock, paper, scissors. So the game of rock, paper, scissors can be played with children as young as eight, which I have done it and tested, and a teacher can assume the role of the AI in this case. So that through the game, the children will learn how the AI is going to respond, how the AI is actually learning how to win at rock, paper, scissors. Problem solving is at the heart of research. During Rethink's journey, we've learned about creative solutions that tackle various pressing issues in Malta and beyond. Let's hear them again. Here's Professor Ruben Paul Borge talking about sustainable concrete. Antoine Gatt presenting the benefits of green roofs. Alexia Merchia discussing dementia-friendly architecture. And Monique Chambers, an innovator who built an app to make sure nobody gets food they can't eat at your dinner party. Concrete is required, it's necessary. It must be available because we really need it. Possibly the largest challenge in the industry is the lifetime of reinforced concrete structures as a result of the degradation of the material. One significant improvement we can consider is how to find alternatives. Alternatives to natural resources, for example, recycling waste materials, finding alternatives to the natural aggregate we use in concrete, finding alternatives to the binder itself, to cement. For example, we are carrying out research at the Faculty for the Built Environment with my research team on the use of recycled steel tire fibers, which can improve the early stage performance of the concrete the use of shredded plastic, shredded PET, which is so harmful to the environment, and yet we can use it effectively in concrete. And when we use these waste materials, the good thing is that we reduce on the natural resources we consume, we reduce on the waste we dump in our landfills, but we also improve the quality of the concrete itself. It's more durable and it performs better with time. Some of the material can end up being used in new products of high quality. Other material can be used, for example, in civil engineering fields. However, we need to go about the waste problem by addressing deconstruction, disassembly, rather than the traditional way of demolishing our buildings. Green roofs are practically structures onto which a, uh, a substrate is spread and plants grown. 
apart from the fact that we tested the plants and the substrate, we also looked at insulation and flood mitigation. We also looked at biodiversity to a lesser degree, and we're pleased to say that the project was successful. You're expected to find birds, obviously, butterflies, spiders, ants. We even had a chameleon coming into our garden, so our green roof. Green roofs are very rich in pollinators, for example, not just bees, but other species of insects. Green roofs are known to reduce flooding, for example, to lower the, the ambient temperature to, uh, I don't know, filter out pollutants in the air. So there are far-ranging uh, benefits, even on a regional scale, to say so. And then if we look at, at uh, the ecology, you know, if you look at the ecosystems, a roof could be an ecosystem in its own right. Um, you're providing habitats for wildlife, you're providing refuge for wildlife, which obviously provide ecosystem services to us as well. If one had to mix solar panels with green roofs. Then what happens is that the uh, solar panels become more efficient when temperature or other when ambient temperature exceeds to the 24-25 degrees mark. Having more green spaces within an urban area would benefit the society in general. If it's generally a nicer space, if it's an environment which is more welcoming, if you're giving, for example, something to, for the kids to do, you're going to actually increase the amount of hours that visitors spend in these spaces, which automatically is improving the well-being of the users and also helping the staff. When we have religious artifacts or times of day when, say, it's time to say the rosary or it's lunchtime, you'd have a specific typology of prayer, which we use at lunchtime. It helps them mark the day and it helps them know where to be at that time. In Malta, I found that even prayers at specific times actually break the afternoon and guide them to know the time of day. A good connection with the outdoors, the value of green open mm -hmm. spaces is massive. So that's what on my own as an advocate, I'm constantly trying to promote. Let's get people outside because we have the right weather. One of the most important things I constantly harp about is apart from the fact that we need the right finishes and we need the right setting, but that the people with dementia and people with mental health issues in general are given things to do. If the environment is designed well enough, if the kitchen is designed well enough to allow that person to get up and make their own cup of tea, that's a really big deal for them. It could be the most important part of their day. So why not design appropriately to allow them to do that? And we now have a credit, which we call Realities and Architecture. And we're basically introducing them to mental health, dementia, and vulnerable groups in general. Every time I have a dinner party, I would have eight or ten people coming and, you know, seven or eight of those would have a different intolerance. So you'd have, you know, a vegetarian or a vegan or a Muslim guy. Or, and it's like, guys, you know, give me a break. What happens with the Internet and one of the things I found in the research was you couldn't do multiple intolerance searches. So if you have the, you know, my typical celiac vegetarian Jewish guy coming to dinner, you can only pick on one of those things. So, you know, it's easy to find vegetarian recipes, easy to find vegan, easy to find lactose-free. You want to find a combination of those, it's really difficult. And I'm talking about the major sites. I'm not talking about the niche sites that might exist. I did loads of research. I made sure that there was a market for this one, that it wasn't just going to be a lucky sale that somebody just picks up on it. Airlines, catering companies, all of that, that's something that will come when it gets to the point where it's on your contact card. But we want to take over the world. Dinner parties first. Finally, we just couldn't resist inviting people whose research is promising as new disruptive technologies. 
or simply cool gadgets to get excited about. We'll hear Dr. Joshua Lul's ideas for plugging household devices into blockchain. The next speaker will be Dr. Engineer Emmanuel Francolanza, an expert of smart manufacturing. And then Dr. Tracy Camilleri and engineer Rosanne Sarafa will tell us all about a brain-controlled bed they are developing. After that, Dr. Engineer Mark Anthony Atzopardi will fondly explain the workings of his team's tiny satellite. You could consider the scenario, let's say, where you wake up and if you have to take medication, you might have a smart medical box. And if you don't take the medication, it might inform your doctor. If you're leaving your house, you might see a glow in the corner and that glow might be your umbrella telling you to take it because it's going to rain. So it's a lot of these devices where it's not direct interaction with the device, but it provides some means of efficiency in a better day-to-day life. One particular problem that I see in reaching this reality is the fact that a lot of IoT systems, platforms, they're very proprietary. You're locked into a particular system. If I have a home automation system created by company X, I can't go and buy lights created by company Y, or at least there is some integration, but you're locked into what they support. We need to move towards more open standards, allowing for any device to speak with any device. So more than technology issues, it's more a social issue, I would say, and uh, governance issue. Modern manufacturing system isn't far off from your smartphone. It's intelligent, it's smart. If you're looking at Europe and higher advanced economies, then automation is the only way in which you can efficiently produce. Something which is quite interesting is that China is actually the largest market at the moment for robots. Why? Obviously, this is an economic issue because labor cost in China has increased significantly over the past 10 years. And at this point in time, China is looking at a strategy of automating even previously manual processes, the use of intelligence and artificial intelligence techniques and digital techniques such as big data, etc., within a manufacturing environment, that still remains highly relevant. We're speaking about very much higher jobs over here because once you speak about machine intelligence, machine learning, big data analysis, which are crucial for these type of technologies, then you're speaking about engineers, IT developers and big companies who are working within these spheres. And obviously, even the local manufacturing firms are very enthusiastic and want to take on these technologies in in order to improve their competitiveness. We are replacing the remote control with brain signals directly communicated through the system we're developing. There are applications which have 40 icons on a computer screen flickering simultaneously with 0.2 hertz difference from one icon to the other. Um, In our case, we're limited to a bad application and the number of functions on a standard remote control are eight. So at this moment, we're we're working with eight. But through training, we also try to identify which frequencies the subject responds to best. The bad application is just one application. So within the tablet that they would have in front of them, they can eventually also use it, for example, to call an nurse in case of an emergency or to control equipment in the room, for example, switching on or off an air condition or changing the channels of a television. 
the basic achievement is the reduction of costs uh, to access space. So a lot of the uh, the work that we go through is in, in reality it's about reliability engineering. Rather than having large satellites performing complex uh, and uh, a whole barrage, a whole, a whole array of functions in one satellite, and obviously that would mean to be a large and expensive satellite to launch, the idea now is to uh, move towards uh, cheaper, faster and, um, and, and quicker um, launches of satellites which are far smaller and can perform tasks uh, which are much more focused. Pocket cubes, so these little, very little satellites, are a fairly recent development. So they didn't exist around 10, 10 years ago, basically. It's just about 10 years since they were conceived. Only four have been launched so far and they were mostly amateur uh, satellites. Now we want to do more than just uh, amateur stuff, we want to basically use them for uh, practical and, and, and useful uh, missions. Thank you for being with us all these months. Which episode was your favorite? Please send us your feedback on any platform of your choice. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. You can also email us at think at um.edu Mt. I'm Rethink's producer and co-host Daiva Repachkaite. And before we say goodbye, I would like to thank the show's team, co-hosts Chris Stiles, Shurti Sundaresen and Dr. Claude Bayada, as well as our ever-patient sound technician Carmel Gregg. Our theme music is by Princess Wonderful. You can find more of her music on SoundCloud. We also thank the entire team of Campus FM for hosting us. Have a great summer. Bye for now.